The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to take a break from all of the discussion about debt and trade. And I know it's hard for me because... Um, all I do is sit on the news, and that's all everybody's talking about. But at the end of the day, we got to talk more about the China-Africa relationship beyond just the the debt crisis, in part because there are so many other facets of this relationship. And so we thought today we were going to shift gears a little bit, turn our attention away from, from loans and Kenya and infrastructure, and talk about the Chinese community in South Africa, and in part because – the community in South Africa really is the heart of the Chinese community in Africa in many ways. This is a population of about 350,000 people, which comes out to be somewhere around half of the entire Chinese population in all of Africa. Again, we don't have any precise numbers on exactly how many people are there. Nobody does. It's an impossible number to actually ascertain. But by most estimates, uh, the community in South Africa is large, it's growing, it's very, very dynamic. Now, what's interesting about this community is because it's in South Africa, Kobus, and you know this all too well, it resembles very much the politics, dynamics, and the culture of where I come from in the United States. Racial politics in South Africa, racial politics in the United States have a lot in common. We both have apartheid histories. We both have large numbers of immigrants. It's also very, very multicultural and, and very, very diverse. Now, on the surface, these Chinese communities look largely homogenous. Oftentimes, they look very, very self-contained. But underneath the surface, Cobus, as you know, with all the diverse communities in South Africa, there's a lot of complexity. Yes, and the Chinese community particularly. The Chinese community in South Africa is, is old. It's, it's, there's been Chinese people living in South Africa since about the 1700s. Um, and there's been successive waves of, of ch different kinds of Chinese people moving to South Africa at different times. So there was a wave of Taiwanese migration to, to South Africa. Um, before that, there was a wave of, of uh, people coming from, Hong, from the Hong Kong area. Um, and more recently, a wave of people coming from Fujian. So you have a community frequently speaking different languages, um, not understanding each other very effectively, and frequently having very different migration experiences as well, and cultural backgrounds. So it's, it's you know, even though the community looks and is treated as, as if they're homogenous frequently in South Africa, actually within the community, it's, it's, it's quite divided. So let's dive into this today and explore the communities because there are things that are happening in South Africa that we can then extrapolate for the rest of the continent. And of course, there are quite a few things that are unique specifically to uh, South Africa. So we're thrilled to have back on the program uh, Barry Van Wick from the Africa-China Reporting Project at the Journalism Program at Wits University in Johannesburg. Uh, very good afternoon to you, Barry. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hey, it's a real pleasure to be with you, Eric and Kobus. 
Well, I think what we need to do before we get started is kind of put our disclosures right up on the table. Uh, for those of you who follow our program closely, uh, many of you may know just from the ads that run before and during the program uh, that the Africa-China Reporting Project is an underwriter of this program. It, they don't influence any of the content that we do, and they, of course, will have no the direction over what we talk about today. But I did want to put that out there, that you are a generous funder of the program, and we appreciate it. Uh, but I think it's just important to kind of put our cards down. So, Barry, you have written a paper uh, called Networking a Quiet Community, South African Chinese News Reporting and Networking. It's not yet published. It's in the process of getting published. We're hoping that it'll soon appear so everybody can read it. You gave us a little bit of a sneak peek. Why don't we start our discussion just kind of going through some of the key points on your paper, uh, and then we'll get we'll, we'll deep dive right after that. Yeah, that sounds great. So basically what this uh, paper, the story that it tells really, is basically an untold story. Um, South Africa has, as you just pointed out in the intro to the podcast, it has really an amazing Chinese community. It's the largest in Africa, and as you say, it's about half of all Chinese in Africa reside in South Africa. But the interesting thing about the South African community, really, is that it has its own South African Chinese media. This South African Chinese media, um, it consists of news agencies, websites, newspapers, and it really tells the story of a vibrant community. It tells the story of this community that's been here, as you pointed out, Kobus, for centuries. And it has this amazing uh, media. It's not a large, you know, it's not obviously not, you know, dozens and dozens of newspapers or anything like that, but it does have its own um, media. And this media tells the story of a South African community that's vibrant, um, that has lots of associations. And um, so what I did is in this paper, I, I looked at six months of media content from January to the end of June 2017. And I looked at everything that was produced in this local Chinese media on the local community. Um, and I went and looked in depth of everything that they reported about the local media, who the major players are, how the, net, how the community has networked. And um, it really was just a fascinating experience because it really is such an untold story. There's this wealth of information that is being produced by this local Chinese media, and yet it's completely behind a wall of incomprehension, as le at least as far as South Africa or really the rest of the country is concerned. This is a, a great community with a great story to tell, and it's a part of this country, yet its story is totally untold. So in, in this paper... What I did is I looked at this uh, looked at this content and started to lift the veil really about this community and everything that it does. So um, I should say that you know if you if you're in South Africa and you hear about the local community, what you will probably hear is that oh it's so divided uh, on political divide uh, political lines on um, you know this society. There's a lot of there's a lot of societies that don't get on, or there's you know there's disagreements or disagreements on so many levels. But actually, this paper takes a slightly different view on the local community because where the networking part comes in, uh, as, the, as you pointed in in the title of the paper, is really focused on this one specific organization that has been formed in South Africa. It's going back now all the way to 2004-05 in that era. Basically, what this um, organization, it's called the South Africa Chinese Community Police Cooperation Center. And there's at this stage, there's about 13 branches um, in South Africa and one in Lesotho as well. And what this organization, this community organization does really is to act to, um, to, to, to as a networking tool for the local community and also for them to, um, for, it's, it's a local organization to protect Chinese people in South Africa. Because obviously in South Africa, there's a little bit of a crime problem, there's a safety problem. And yet if you look at this community and what it's done, it's actually, despite all the divisions, it's done an amazing job of forming these organize, this organization that has all these branches around the country that is there to 
support Chinese people. So to put it in context, if you're a Chinese person in South Africa, at any place in the country, at any time of the day, if you have any kind of emergency or any kind of problem, you can phone these guys and they will come and they will help you. And whatever your problem is, they will actually do that. So that's actually just an amazing thing. So that's a very brief summary of the paper. It's basically about the local Chinese media and how this local community, which on the one end, just to end off, on the one end, seems like a very quiet community. I mean, the only time when the community in South Africa really comes out and, you know, portrays itself is um, on the spring festival days. And um, actually, if you look at it, it's actually a very well-networked community. So, Barry, can you give us an idea of, of how the, how these um, police cooperation forums actually work? Um, you, you mentioned that if you have an, an emergency, then you call them and then they, they essentially come and help you. Um, but how is that different from the, from the service that the South African police gives generally or doesn't give generally? Yeah. So, so basically what this is about is, you know, a, a, uh, a lot, a lot of Chinese people in South Africa, um, you know, in 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 the in the past and presently as well, they they don't really speak English so well, or if they do, it's not really for them a very convenient language. So the idea with this community police community centers was to establish a service for Chinese people that would be for Chinese people in Chinese people to support them. So that's the basic concept that why they fought, that why these were established, but actually it goes beyond that because. Um, it goes back all the way to 2004-05 when the, the, the embassy was involved and a lot of other organizations came together. At that stage, um, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, there were an average of about 20 Chinese people were murdered every year in South Africa. That's, that's the story that is being told. And um, Chinese people really just felt that they had to do something proactive in South Africa to actually protect their lives and their property. And um, as a result, this, um, this, uh, this, this organization was formed. So the idea is that they have these 13 main regional offices. So all the people in, so these, these 13 regional offices are spread around the country. So these, the, the community, community police uh, center will have these main offices around the country, but they will also have basically a presence, even if it's just a few people in all the major cities and, um, cities and towns of South Africa. So if you're a Chinese person, you have a problem, you can phone these guys, they will come, they will help. They will, firstly, they will, I mean, we should, we should note though that it's, it's, it's based on the community policing forum, which is basically, um, something established in South Africa law, but these guys have taken this concept and just run with it. So the concept of community policing is a concept in South African law, and these guys have just run with it and just expanded it to a great extent. So for them, the idea is that Chinese people have their own structures. They have a proactive system and a proactive structures that Chinese people can rely on that can be, the, you know, so these guys, if you phone them, they will come, they will interact with the local police on your behalf. Often they would arrive on crime scenes, um, you know, because we know obviously that uh, Chinese shop owners are spread around the country in, a, in, a, in, a, in small towns, in, you know, in, in, in very rural areas where there's not always the local services available. And yet for them, these, uh, these community centers are actually there to assist them as well. So it's really a thing about, it's a proactive thing about the local Chinese community they established to protect them, them themselves and their property. Okay, so uh, I'm going to get to media in a second, but since we're on the policing thing, let's kind of spend a little time looking at this. Community policing and in-language policing is is nothing new around the world. And in, in my previous life, uh, I was the vice president of news 
uh, at uh, KSCI Channel 18 in Los Angeles, which back in the day, in the up until about a few years ago, was the largest Chinese TV station in the United States. We did a lot of outreach with the Los Angeles Police Department, who also has uh, in-language policing. And that's a very common thing in the United States. Uh, New York, Houston, L.A., San Francisco, all of them have an emphasis on community policing and in-language policing in Spanish, in Chinese, in Vietnamese, Tagalog, lots of different languages. However, one of the key differences, and this is what I'd like to get, I want to understand what's happening in South Africa. There is no connection between the Los Angeles Police Department and the Chinese embassy and the Chinese government. And I think what makes people, and myself included, a little bit apprehensive about these 13 community policing centers is the connection between what you said, the embassy. And I just don't understand, and I'd like you to elaborate on this from what you understand, why does the South African government and South African law enforcement have to interact with the embassy when, in fact, the law enforcement that they're practicing has nothing to do with necessarily Chinese nationals but Chinese immigrants? And the Chinese community in South Africa are not necessarily made up of Chinese nationals. So I guess, and, and, and the way that the story was presented was with a very strong influence of the Chinese law enforcement and Chinese police. And that made a lot of people nervous. In fact, some of the stories even said that uh, some data about Chinese nationals in South Africa were sent back to China as well. So can you talk a little bit about what the relationship is between these policing senators, these centers and uh, China and Chinese law enforcement? Yeah, Eric, it's clear that um, there is widespread contact between these centers and mainland uh, institutions. So when, you know, all the way from the Public Security Bureau, and we know that, um, you know, the Public Security Bureau, other government departments, there is interaction between them. We, you know, the um, th there's definitely some interaction between them in the, in the sense that um, a lot of delegations would regularly come. If you look at the local Chinese media, these things are reported on regularly. A lot of delegations would come to South Africa. They would visit the community center in Johannesburg or other centers, regional offices, and they would be contact. Or, you know, for example, in 2017, uh, Wu Kong, who was at that stage the director of the South Africa Chinese Community Police Cooperation Center, he led a delegation to uh, mainland China where he visited several several institutions um, in Beijing and Shanghai, the overseas Chinese Shanghai office, or to Fujian. So we do know that there is contact. We do know that um, the embassy uh, plays a role in these things. So so there is contact. And I think for me, as far as I could tell, there definitely is, the, these things take the form of a supportive, there's a supportive structures that, that are in place here. So I can't really say, you know, in detail, detail what is the kind of support that is given. But I think the way that it is presented is that there is, you know, the, the, the local community police centers do have some support from mainland China, whether it be, you know, they, you know if you look at, for example, at their financial support that as it's reported, um, they would, they, they, they have uh, very strong uh, links with the embassy. The embassy can provide some funding. But we do also know that they have very strong links. And this is the other side of the story. These community police centers have very strong links with local police. They are very well integrated with local police centers. So it's not as if it's just a, you know, it's, they only have links to mainland or Chinese institutions. They have very strong links to uh, local police departments. For example, in um, June 2017, when the uh, Orange Free State Province uh, Police Community Center was established, at the launching ceremony, for example, you had um, the premier at that stage, Eich of the Free State, was present at the, at the ceremony. And not only him, but a whole range of uh, local mayors and um, provincial officials officials, you know, so 
you know, I think these police, you know, and I think the reason why this is um, why, why this happens in this way is because the police, um, the South African police services, I think they they welcome these community police centers because they help them actually to, but, but to do. Why the policing. do they need the Chinese government to? South Africa is wealthy enough to afford thirteen police centers. They can call the Los Angeles police, the Paris police. There's any number of of police organizations around the world that can help them set up in language police services. I don't understand why they need to integrate with the Chinese police. And I, and it, I think the critics here may have a point that it gives cause to be concerned that you have Chinese law enforcement collecting data and, in, and interacting with those in a democratic country. That just yeah, feels although weird I don't to me. Think, I mean, I don't I mean think the optics alone just them. feel weird. I don't think they're integrating with them in that sense. I mean, I don't think it's like this. Or at least interacting you know, this, is what I was saying, interacting. Yeah, so, you know, interacting, you know, I, I can't really speak to how, what level of interaction there is. All I know is that there are sometimes visits, there's some sort of what kind of support there is, I don't really know. I think, you know, these okay. these local police centers are staffed by local Chinese people. I mean, I think that's clear. I mean, if you look at the people who are, who run the police centers and who's run the whole organization, these are South Africans who, uh, South African Chinese, sorry, who have lived in South Africa for decades you know, so these are people who really understand the local situation. I mean, you, you know, to you know, if you, if you ask me why did things happen in this way, why did the South African police not form these things on their own? Well, it's very hard to say. It didn't happen that way. These things happened because in 2004-5, Chinese people felt they had to do something. They had to do something about the crime, criminality, and the you know the the, the crime situation as they saw it, and so they they did it. And this is how it happened. I'm not really sure that there's you know it's it's such a sinister process that they they they're trying to you know have uh, integration or influence or these things i'm not it's it's possible that it happens but i'm not sure of it i think the the real over overarching idea about these things is that it's a local organization that's that's strongly integrated with a local police way more than anything from mainland china support for this podcast comes from the africa china reporting project at wits university school of journalism in johannesburg the acrp provides reporting grants workshops and other professional development opportunities for both african and chinese journalists follow the acrp on twitter at wits china africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars Kobus, let me get your take on this because I know you've got some opinions. This, uh, so what Barry's saying sounds really interesting in the sense that it is local. And so once again, we run into a messaging, a public relations, a communications and an optics problems that the Chinese are having in terms of communicating their role. People don't know what the role is, so it makes them nervous. And, and in these days, in, in this era now, where information spreads so much on social media, on YouTube and whatnot, uh, that's a pretty dangerous thing. So it just seems like if it in fact is what Barry says it is, even though he doesn't have all the information, it seems like the Chinese could have done a better job in communicating that. Yes, it was interesting. The the discourse around the policing centres were quite it was quite mixed in South Africa, um, and there was the you know I, I um, the, the the kind of journalists that I spoke with about it you know raised some of some of these these issues. At the same time, in South Africa, there's such a high awareness of of crime as a problem generally. Um, you know that that any kind of anti crime measure in South Africa tends to get you know tends to get a relatively positive reception. Um, and because it's a, it's an issue that that ordinary South Africans are so aware of and so, so kind of worried about, um, Barry, what I would actually wanted to to, to ask you. Uh, 
about is, um, you know, you, so, so far we've looked at, at the situation of, of Chinese people as victims of crime in South Africa. Um, but in, in previous podcasts, we've also pointed out that, that, that several Chinese, um, you know, criminal networks sometimes use South Africa as either a base or a, a you know, way station. These include networks that, that smuggle illegal wildlife products like abalone, for example. Um, and do you, uh, what, what uh, is, are these um, police centers, are they involved in kind of transnational Chinese um, law enforcement in, you know, in, in prosecuting criminal networks that, that have a one foot in China and one foot in Africa? Yeah, I think, you know, I think, Corbis, to answer your question, I think the short answer is yes. I can't really speak specifically to the transnational aspect of it. I think as far as I could tell, that was that was discussed, you know, sometimes, for example, when they have um, these uh, visit, visits or delegations from from, from, from mainland China, then these things would be discussed. But to, to, to the other part of your question, I mean, it's quite right. It's quite true what you point out that Chinese people in this, in, 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 in <clears throat> as far as these police centers are concerned, definitely are not only the victims of crimes, but are also portrayed as, you know, being actual perpetrators of the crimes. And this is very clear um, in these police centers. They have um, annual meetings where they discuss, where they discuss the, um, all their major cases that they had, the major issues that they had to deal with every year. And it's quite clear that they do also discuss these issues. And they do also encounter these issues where Chinese people actually are um, part of criminal activities, p- criminal networks. For example, they had a meeting in uh, June 2017 where um, Li Xinzhu, who um, at that stage was the honorary director, actually was has recently this year in March been re-elected as the director. A very interesting story, Li Xinzhu. But uh, he, he actually estimated that um, goods worth at least uh, $3.1 million uh, are stolen every year in South Africa. Chinese goods worth at least you know, $3.1 million are, are, are stolen every year in, in South Africa. And that Chinese people are actually also involved in colluding as he put it, with other African people engaging in theft, extortion, kidnapping, um, we do know that these exist. I mean, if you look at the actual things that um, the um, local Chinese media report on, there's really nothing left to, to chance. I mean, if you look at what they report on, they do report on Chinese people involved in criminal activities, such as all these things described above. Um, there was this very interesting official who has actually very recently left at the Chinese embassy, but his name is Wang Dragong, and he was busy. At, he, he was working at the Chinese embassy in Pretoria in South Africa for like uh, many years probably close to a decade. And and this guy actually had contact um, on these things, you know, he, with, with, he, he would sometimes go on street level, would go and, um, you know, go and interview Chinese people or African people, be on street level, be sometimes really, you know, co- cooperating very closely with police. And he often would um, investigate these cases where actually Chinese people are involved in these criminal cases. So it's definitely a case that Chinese people are not only the uh, victims of crime, and they're also the perpetrators of crime, and not to mention even where these, these issues of environmental crimes for smuggling of um, you know uh, environmental products or ivory or these things the local Chinese media report on these things they do they make it very clear when Chinese people are involved in these things so all these things this is part of the story that is um, outlined in this paper is that the local Chinese uh, media actually t- you know they, they they are full of these things there's a, there's a whole wealth of information that is being reported here so let's kind of move on from the law enforcement side of your paper and focus more on the media side, which you talked about. Uh, and, and I think it's important that we define our terms here, because when a lot of people hear Chinese media, they may think of Xinhua, uh, the People's Daily, China Daily, 
uh, CGTN, the TV network, China Radio International. Uh, and then there's a distinction between the immigrant media, and those are the media outlets that are produced in South Africa that are South African-owned and operated and not have they don't have any connection with China or mainland China. And again, going back to my own experience in Los Angeles, even though we were broadcasting in Chinese, we, of course, were an American media outlet. So when you're talking about Chinese media, are you talking about the former, which is the state-owned Chinese media from China, or are you talking about local immigrant media produced in South Africa by South Africans and regulated by South African media law? No, I'm very much talking about South African Chinese media. Um, this paper of mine is very much about South African Chinese media, not about mainland Chinese media. So South African Chinese media, the, you know, what, you know, the, the, main, the main elements of South African Chinese media are basically one or two or three sort of news agencies. The leading of them is called African Times, Fejor Shrabal. Now, African Times was formed in 2005. Um, many of these guys that I've mentioned before, Li Xinzhu, Wu Kang, these are people who were actually also involved in the forming. They were founding members of the Police Community Center. They were also the people who were founding members of African Times, 2005 in Johannesburg. Now, African Times was actually set up as a news agency for the South African Chinese community. It has it has an office um, it has an office in Cyrildine, which is the new Chinatown where most of the Chinese in Johannesburg reside. It has a media office there. It has a few journalists that cover stories. And actually, in the paper, I, I really um, I reference a lot of the articles that they produce. There's a few of their journalists that I work with quite closely, and these people cover these stories about all the Chinese community. And you know, they they are not they have no overt connection with mainland Chinese media. This is a South African Chinese media network. So African Times is probably the leading one, but there's a few others as well. There's um, Nanfei Huarunwang, uh, South Africa Chinese News Network. And there's a, there's a couple of other newspapers as well that actually go back all the way to the 90s and probably even earlier. So the newspapers that you have um, in the South African Chinese uh, media newspapers, they have a very small print run. Um, I, I don't actually know how large, you know, how many numbers, but it's probably quite small. Um, but they do have newspapers, they have websites, and they have these news agencies, um, and they have these news portals. So it's definitely a South African Chinese uh, media network and not a mainland one. I actually, um, as part of the research for this paper, I visited them a few times and tried to talk to them um, and inter interview them a little bit in an informal way. Actually, I, I've come to get to know some of their journalists and they would actually tell you that um, they, com they practice complete media freedom. That's what they would say. So in addition to that, there is obviously also a few um, mainland Chinese media journalists who operate in South Africa. I mean, there was a few of them that have been, been working in South Africa for several years Many of them actually, a few of them actually left quite recently. Um, but um, there's like a China News Service one that was here for many years, um, and there's um, ones that People's Daily have an office, a small office here in Johannesburg. So there are actually also mainland media and news agencies here, but they would generally report on, you know, sort of the how can you so Africa China political affairs and these things they wouldn't so much really go into the local Chinese community for the local Chinese community you would really get into the likes of African Times and the South African Chinese media these um, local Chinese um, publications and news services how are they funded 
They are probably funded by the local community. I'm not 100% sure exactly where they are funded, but I think they are funded from the local the local community in the same way to a large extent that the police centers, I think a lot of their funding, um, sorry, just a quick aside, a lot of their funding comes from um, their, uh, their, 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 their the committee, the, 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 the leading committee that run them. And obviously they have... Um, sometimes they, they have um, uh, you know, fun, you know, they have contributions, like I said, from the embassy or from other people. But I think it's pretty much the same story for these local news agencies. They're funded by local by the local community. Let me preface the next question that I'm going to say that uh, there's. I want to make sure that when I ask the question, that I have a little bit of self reflection. I am an immigrant here in China. Um, I can't say that I assimilate that well in China. I eat my my. I don't eat Chinese food that much. I, it's very salty and very greasy <laughs> if you eat it every night. Um, I, I don't read the the Chinese newspapers, even though I can. I, I kind of go out and buy the, the local magazines, local newspapers. I do consume a lot of English language content uh, here in Shanghai. There's a lot of it. Uh, so I'm, I'm not assimilated. And I speak fluent Chinese, probably not as well as you do, Barry, but nonetheless, uh, <laughs> I'm there. And uh, so, so I want to put that caveat out there. Uh, in Africa, particularly in South Africa, a lot of the criticism that people have of the Chinese community is that they don't assimilate. And these media oftentimes reinforce that notion that, well, they're in their own bubble, they're isolated from the rest of the community, they're not reading our, our same shared newspapers. Now, in Los Angeles, when I was running immigrant media there, I would always make the argument that the first generation relies on this, but the second generation that goes to public schools, that learns the local language, that is more culturally uh, bilingual between the native culture and the adopted culture, uh, they become assimilated. So talk to me a little bit about that criticism of the isolationism that this media may may generate or the perceptions of it that they are foreign and different from the rest of us. Yeah, I think that's a very complicated uh, issue. You know, I think in South Africa, one should point out there's a, there's a couple of caveats that one should point out about the South African Chinese community. I think the vast majority of the Chinese in South Africa are relatively recent arrivals, you know, so, you know, most of them arrived in the 2000s or maybe the 90s some, but most of them are even much later than that, you know. So the the, the proportion of the um, South African Chinese today in South Africa who arrived in the 19th century or who arrived even several decades ago, maybe the Taiwanese who arrived in the 70s or 80s, that proportion is very small. And if you do know some of those, they are very assimilated. You know, they, they you know, they, some of them don't even speak Chinese anymore. I have people that we know, friends that we know who are like that. They don't even really speak Chinese anymore. They don't live in a Chinese community. I mean, they are, if anything, they would have to be assimilated if you were judged by that standard. So the vast majority of the rest um, are likely to be um, arrived quite recently. Um, they are um, likely from Fujian province. So the question of assimilation then becomes, a, you know, it becomes quite complicated. You know, maybe if they are more recent arrivals, they're really quite complicated. You know, it's hard to say if they are assimilated, maybe they, they need more time. So to put it another way, if you look at, um, you know, you know some, some of the leaders that I've mentioned before, Li Xinju, Wu Shaokang, um, if you look at their story, you know, if you look at their story in the context of assimilation, um, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit difficult because if you look at Wu Shaokang, for example, this guy, he arrived back in the 90s and Li Xinjou, both of them, these are just to refresh, it's, they are both, um, they were both the directors of the police center at different stages. There's only been two directors and these two, um, these two guys, they both arrived in the 90s. They both arrived at a time when 
South Africa didn't even have political relations with uh, mainland China, with the PRC. And um, as far as I can tell, I don't really think that either of them speak Chinese or, or English, sorry, speak English or speak it really well. So for them, possibly you can say maybe they do exist in a bubble, um, in some sort of a Chinese bubble here. But, you know, it's hard to say. You know, I think they, the, the vast majority of Chinese in South Africa are probably quite recent arrivals. So when it comes to the question of assimilation, it's a hard judgment to make. Yeah. And I mean, just to add to that, the, the, the reality of South Africa is that, is that South Africa is such a fractured society, um, obviously because of, because of historical legacies of apartheid, that even if, you know, like, the, it, it, South Africa is, is, a, is, a real, is a very good case study to, to, to unpack what assimilation actually means, you know, because a lot of people who have been, whose families have been here for 200 years, still in lots of very, very fundamental ways count as not assimilated at all, you know, so South Africa is in a lot of ways a different set of of different bubbles, you know, with where where people live in in different forms of isolation, um, you know, and 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 so you know, even if Chinese Chinese um, immigrants don't necessarily live in a Chinese community, they might live in a, a largely kind of even relatively cosmopolitan middle class community that, in a different way, in South Africa also counts as not being assimilated. Sorry, one last point. Can I just add to that? I mean, it's, it's really interesting. We had um, workshops here for foreign journalists, and often what we would do is um, take them to meet Walter Pon. Um, now, Walter Pon is one of the elders of the local Chinese community, and Walter Pon actually could tell you his story. He's, he's lived all his life in South Africa, and Walter Pon could tell you his story of going back decades and decades of, you know, doing apartheid time and his life in South Africa, what that was like. Um, you know, and his whole family is in South Africa, and his, his family is part of the Chinese community. His, his nephew is uh, Erwin Pon. Erwin Pon is actually the head of the Chinese Association of Gauteng. If you look at Erwin, you know, he's really, a, he's a South African person through and through. You know, he's, he's a Chinese South African, but he's a South African person. So, you know, the question of assimilation really varies. I really think it really varies on who you speak to. But like I said, the picture is a little bit um, complicated um, by the fact that the vast majority of Chinese in South Africa are relatively new arrivals. The paper is Networking, a Quiet Community, South African Chinese News Reporting and Networking. It's not out yet, but it's making its way through. As soon as it becomes available, we will, of course, share it. Hopefully, it's not behind one of these annoying academic journal paywalls that no one can see. Uh, but no, if it is available... Not. Okay, good. That's that's good news for us. Uh, Barry Van Wick, he runs the Africa-China Reporting Project at the uh, at Witts University in Johannesburg, one of the great projects uh, that really is facilitating communication among not just African and Chinese journalists, but stakeholders of all sizes. And uh, and again, they help support our podcast, which we're very, very grateful to. So Barry, thank you so much for the support. And thank you so much also for taking the time uh, to share your paper with us. It's a great pleasure, Eric and Kubis. Thank you very much for the discussion. I think this is a really interesting topic. I really enjoyed working on it. And I think it's uh, great to bring, this, uh, to bring this whole topic out to people can, can understand this more. So I'm really looking forward to when this paper is going to be available. Thank you for the opportunity. Kobus, I, I can't tell you how excited I am that Barry went to the effort to do this paper to talk about immigrant media. And immigrant media to me is it's it means so much to me. And again, I spent five years producing immigrant media in Los Angeles, and it was through that experience that I recognized how the critics have it all wrong when they say that Chinese language media in Pretoria or in Johannesburg or in Los Angeles. Uh, is evidence of the lack of assimilation. And I will say it's actually the opposite because immigrants like me here in China or Chinese in Pretoria 
by looking, by being able to watch news, read news, and engage content that's about their community, are actually more engaged with the community, not less. People assume that because the characters are in Chinese that they're watch, they're finding out news from back home, which may be the case. That's definitely part of the content mix. But a lot of it is local reporting. What's going on in the schools, in crime, in education policy, in government policy, in elections and things like that. So it actually ties people more to the community. It's an assimilative uh, force and it, and it has a connection. You have a connection with where you live. And I think it's fantastic. So in that sense, I think there's a really big misunderstanding. And also the, the only other point that I want to make is in this day and age where there is so much skepticism and cynicism against immigrants, particularly in the United States and Europe and also in Japan and here in China actually as well, um, these types of media are so critical in helping to kind of create bonds between people. And I just think it's the biggest mistake in places like Europe that are resistant to producing these kinds of media because they have this naive notion that everybody who comes to Sweden or to France should immediately learn French and consume French media, which is just ridiculous. One of the best things that they could do in the banlieue would be to have Arabic and French media produced by Africans for Africans about life in Paris and France and Europe. And they don't do that. And again, it's an old way of thinking. So I think media can be one of these things, a very powerful force to challenge some of the hostile populist impulses that we're seeing in Europe and the United States today. I really agree. Um, you know, the, the 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 media that Barry was looking at, a lot of it is, a lot of that content, it, ha it happens to be in, in in Chinese, but a lot of it is talking about what it means to be South African. You know, like what, like how to navigate South Africa, how to live comfortably in South Africa. And that is a big topic that, that needs a lot of unpacking. Um, and I completely agree with you. And, and to a certain extent, I think South Africa is, is the future in a way, because South Africa really doesn't have one dominant dominant language, you know, like almost everyone in South Africa is, speaks English, but almost everyone in South Africa speaks English as a second language and they speak, they speak something else at home. Um, and even that, that something else isn't one unified language. South Africa has 11 official languages. Um, so in, in, a, in a lot of ways, South Africa represents the, a kind of a future where people have to live together and where multilingualism is a, is a permanent part of life. Um, and, I, and I completely agree with you. The, the, the better we get at dealing with that, the better. Yeah. And the one uh, lone point that Barry didn't mention in his paper, and we didn't talk about it in our discussion, is the role of WeChat, uh, the Chinese social network. Even though when you're outside of China, you can't use it as effectively as you can here inside of China with all the payments and all the, the convenience that it brings. It's a super app. Uh, outside of China, it doesn't really feel that way. But because it's got so many people on it and it's so powerful in what it can do, even if you're outside, uh, my I imagine that in, in South Africa, a lot of the Chinese communities are using WeChat to distribute news and to share information. And so a lot of the, the information that used to be in newspapers that then migrated to the internet is now moving over to social networks like WeChat and things like that. So that would be the next research paper that I hope Barry has a chance to, to look into. So, so glad we had a chance to take a break from our discussion on Chinese debt. Again, we're going to come back to this in part because there was some great news that happened this past week with President Kenyatta from Kenya, who came here to Shanghai to participate in the China Import Expo. And he gave the keynote address where he really talked about the importance of balance of trade and the debt issue was very much on his mind. So we will come back to that. 
but we want to take a break for a couple weeks just to be able to really show all of the other issues that are going on right now in China-Africa relations beyond just the economic relationship. So um, what do you think about that, Kobus? Take a break for a couple of weeks or we go back to the debt? <laughs> Yeah, I think, yes, yes, and no, I think, I think, let's take a debt break for a few weeks. Good, a debt break, that's what we'll call it. And it's not because we're ignoring the story. We uh, we believe the story is important, but we also don't want people to think like, oh God, not another show about the debt, really? I mean, and then at that point, this just becomes a monotonous kind of thing. So we're going to do some cool shows. We have some shows planned about the tech scene in Nairobi coming up. Uh, we're going to talk to hopefully some journalists who cover Africa for international financial news publications. So we've got some really cool shows coming up uh, about journalism and tech and other things. And then we'll, of course, come back to debt. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Uh, we'll be back again next week with another edition. For Kobus Venstaden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander in Shanghai. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.